Hello and welcome to Building Local Power. I'm Stacy Mitchell of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. The 2018 midterm elections are just weeks away and they're taking place against a backdrop of unprecedented corporate power and widespread corruption. We have Wall Street banks that are rewriting the rules for how we regulate banks for their own benefit. We have Jeff Bezos emerging as the richest person in the world with a net worth of around $160 billion, even as median wages for ordinary people haven't budged in more than two decades. We have private tech companies that are profiting from our immigration policies. Everywhere, it seems, the structural imbalance of power is becoming ever more apparent and deeply troubling. One journalist who has been working tirelessly to shine a light on injustice and corruption is my guest today, David Dayan. What I love about David's work is that it isn't just about bad actors. It's about the underlying policies that allow the big and powerful to rig the economy and get away with it. With the election coming up, I was eager to get David on the show to see if he sees any signs of hope in what candidates are talking about on the campaign trail. I also want to ask him about being an investigative reporter, how he looks for stories and what makes a good story. David is the author of a really terrific book that if you haven't read, you should. It's called Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud. It came out in 2016, and it's the winner of the Ida and Studs Terkel Prize. David is also a contributing writer to The Intercept and New Republic, and he is the Goodman Fellow at In These Times. He lives in Los Angeles. David, welcome to Building Local Power. Well, thanks for having me on, Stacey. I appreciate it. Yeah, so I want to talk about the election, but I actually want to start with the financial crisis, uh, which I feel like, you know, 10 years on, this is something that has just profoundly shaped our politics. Um, and we, you know, we just had this 10-year anniversary of, I guess, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, um, and there was a lot of ink uh, all over the place of, of various magazines and newspapers, people writing about uh, the, you know, sort of doing a retrospective on the financial crisis. And I'm curious just to hear from you as someone who's covered this so deeply and, you know, really on the front lines of what's happened to, to ordinary people and losing their homes. Like, what, what do you think about how we assess the crisis today and what's your assessment? Well, I think uh, in our assessment of the crisis, and I'm not necessarily talking about myself, but uh, talking about sort of the dominance media retrospectives that you were just talking about, it uh, once again leaves out those who were most powerfully affected by it. And I don't think you can get a good picture of uh, whether we had a successful recovery, whether uh, the crisis was avoidable, whether the debts uh, uh, were, were preventable if you're not talking about the 9.3 million American families who happen to lose their homes, either through a foreclosure or some other transaction uh, in the, after the collapse of the housing bubble. I mean, this is just fundamental to uh, what actually happened after the crisis. And, you know, I felt like that part of it has always been sort of left to the side. We get these swashbuckling narratives about central bankers and, and, and regulatory officials and CEOs plotting together to save the financial system. And it's a, you know, a nice story for Andrew Ross Sorkin. But uh, what about the millions of people who were, were, were really hit hard? And so uh, at In These Times, as part of my uh, uh, retrospective, I talk to one of the people that write me every day, practically, uh, someone who's still fighting 
to to save their home after a a very dubious uh, attempt at foreclosure. This is something that is ongoing. There, the financial crisis hasn't ended for many many people uh, who are still you know locked in battle with their banks. Uh, who are trying to take their homes away under under somewhat dubious circumstances. So I, I don't think you get a full picture without that. And and if you add that in, I think you see the crisis as as a truly tragic event, one that uh, failed to uh, stand by uh, millions of people who bore its brunt. It failed to allocate losses equitably. Uh, banks ended up bouncing back very quickly. Homeowners and people who lost their jobs uh, struggled for years and years and years uh, in ways that we still see affecting our economy uh, today. And uh, so, you know, I think that the financial crisis is a cautionary tale about how how to, uh, you know, who really matters in a recession. Do you think uh, our politics would be different today if homeowners were at the center of, if homeowners were the people we bailed out and if the bankers went to jail, do you think we'd be in a different situation right now? Absolutely, I do. Uh, I think that the financial crisis and the aftermath uh, and the lack of accountability on those who perpetrated the crisis and the lack of support for those who, through little fault of their own, uh, were devastated by it. Uh, created and reinforced a sense of unfairness within the economy uh, and uh, this notion that the game is essentially rigged for powerful and influential people uh, and interests. And uh, certainly that was exploited by uh, Donald Trump during the 2016 election campaign. Uh, certainly, uh, that was exploited by forces that aligned with the Tea Party. Uh, and, and certainly that uh, led us down this road where, uh, you know, rather ironically, the, the many of the same Wall Street interests that profited off the financial crisis are now in regulatory positions uh, with an opportunity to benefit from it. As you look at the landscape, for this upcoming midterm election, I, do you see any signs of hope on this front? I mean, do you, do you think there's more conversation uh, about sort of the structural imbalance of power um, and you know ways that I mean, are candidates talking about these these the sort of fundamental problems in the economy and who gets to make decisions in a way that's different from previous elections, or do you feel like this is kind of more of what we've seen in the past? Well, I would say that corruption. Uh, writ large is uh, and has been over the last decade a potent political issue. And Democrats are certainly taking up that mantle this time. You know, it was it was actually Democrats that invented the term drain the swamp uh, in hmm. 2006 after uh, abuses involving Jack Abramoff were very dominant in the K Street Project and Tom DeLay and all of these episodes of official corruption, uh, it was Nancy Pelosi who came up with the term drain the swamp. And, of course, Donald Trump used that to his benefit in 2016. And I think we're seeing a reversal of that in 2018. 
the true test is whether that uh, progresses from a campaign slogan and uh, a way to talk about uh, the political parties into a program for reform. So after 2006, there were some mild reforms, uh, mostly around disclosure of lobbying activities. Uh, obviously, it did not uh, uh, eradicate <laughs> corruption in any meaningful way uh, thereafter. Uh, this time around, there is uh, what is known as a democracy reform task force that the uh, House of Representatives has put together and a, a kind of a blueprint for uh, the kinds of things that they want to do uh, if put into power. And there are some lobbying reforms, but they're they're kind of attacking it more broadly. They're, they're talking about voting rights uh, within mm-hmm. the context of that. They're talking about money and politics within the context of it. You know, John Sarbanes, who is uh, sort of the leader uh, on the House side of this effort, has talked about things that I think might uh, be interesting to, to, to you and your, your, your listeners around, uh, you know, bringing local control and individual control back into politics. So they have uh, this thing called, uh, I, I think at some point they call it democracy bonds or things like that, which would be a uh, uh, sort of a hundred dollars that you would get tax free uh, would be sort of a refundable tax credit that you could give to any political candidate and it would be matched at the government level. I think a six to one match. So instead of having to go after Goldman Sachs or Amazon or, you know, some giant pack, you could, you know, string together thousands of people, get the hundred dollar democracy bond from them and get a, a government match on that and, and fund your campaigns that way, uh, which would bring millions more people into the process. Literally every American citizen uh, would have an opportunity to donate, which today uh, that's reserved for, you know, a very small number of people actually donate to elections. Uh, so I think that's kind of an interesting concept. Uh, to to you know democratize uh, election funding really in some way uh, and you know obviously I don't think Donald Trump's going to sign that but if you look at a, a change in the balance of power over a number of years maybe that's something that uh, could could break uh, this this kind of vicious cycle of of, of corporate power begetting political power. Mm-hmm. Are there any particular races that you're keeping an eye on that you think really, you know, sort of illuminate these issues around corruption and corporate power? I can think of a couple. Uh, I'm heading out to Iowa next week uh, to follow the campaign of uh, J.D. Shulton. J.D. Shulton is a candidate running in Iowa's, uh, I believe it's the third or actually it's fourth congressional district in Iowa. Uh, and he's running against Steve King who is notorious um, uh, for his immigration statements. But it's interesting that he's, you know, uh, Shulton is running in a farm state uh, and he is really looking at issues of big agriculture, monopoly power in the farming sector and agriculture and uh, those kinds of issues that are really very immediate for uh, Iowa families, uh, particularly farmers. So, uh, that's a way to bring these issues to a very direct uh, and immediate level. 
when you're talking about family farm financing, when you're talking about the systems by which seed monopolies or livestock monopolies uh, make it difficult for the livelihoods of family farmers, that's a way to really uh, bring those messages uh, in, in, into focus. So that's uh, one example I can think of. There are some other races around the country uh, where you're seeing this, but uh, I will say that in general, there's been kind of a nationalization uh, under Trump uh, of, of the political realm. And to the extent that a corruption message is playing or an anti-corporate message is playing, it's filtered through Trump and the Trump organization, uh, at least on the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's kind of where they're looking to, to, to leverage the unpopularity of Trump and, and, and to play up the ways in which he's personally enriched himself, how he's enriched other uh, uh, corporate interests through policymaking, uh, which I think, you know, is is a, a realistic way for people to connect to these issues. Uh, but it is it is limited to that frame in, in most contexts, not all, but in, in most contexts. Oh, that's really interesting about the the Iowa race. I'm going to look forward to reading your reporting on that. Um, and it's interesting to me that we're seeing more candidates who, at least in the primaries, and some of the ones I'm thinking about, it didn't didn't make past the past the primaries, but people who really were out in um, rural areas and red places, um, sort of running, uh, you know, in, in a, on an anti corporate power agenda in a way that seemed. To, to energize a lot of people and offer some hope of a different sort of electoral map, maybe. One of the uh, things that really struck me as I was looking back through your reporting before this interview is it just I kind of all of a sudden had this aha moment that you write a lot about law enforcement, basically, you know, the sort of lack of law enforcement for, um, you know, so-called white collar crime. And I, you know, I was thinking about, you know, I, I heard an interview with Senator Elizabeth Warren recently, and she, you know, is has got just a really strong stance about corporate criminals, you know, these folks on Wall Street or the CEOs, and what they get away with, and what kinds of punishments they really deserve, you know, to be removed from their offices or to face other kinds of penalties for things that they do. Um, Rohit Chopra, who, uh, as you know, is a, a member uh, of the FTC, is an FTC commissioner. There are five commissioners. He's a fairly new commissioner there, uh, a Democrat. Uh, and you know, he did a memo back in May that's all about the fact that government enforcement agencies, including the FTC, don't really sufficiently enforce uh, the law in the sense that they, you know, if a company breaks the law, the penalties are minor um, and so minor that they often just go out and break the law again. And I mean, we see this, you know, with things that the FTC, uh, you know, orders that they've given to Google and Facebook where the fines are so minuscule that it doesn't really matter at all. It's just spare change to these companies. You know, we see it with Wells Fargo. I can't even keep up with how, I mean, Wells Fargo just seems to break the law like on a grand scale and then turn around and break the law again. I mean, it just goes on and on. And so I'm just curious, like, you know, is this like law and order framework? Is this something that maybe the Democratic Party might pick up? Do you think that this is something, you know, sort of corporate law and order that we ought to talk about more and ought to be a more central theme? You know, I I don't think that I am, uh, you know, necessarily arguing for wholesale more punitive treatment of people who break the law in a general sense. I, I mean, I think in general, America is, is an over-incarcerated country. 
that uh, usually takes people who are accused and, and convicted of minor offenses and really throws the book at them. It's the dichotomy of people, you know, for example, uh, convicted of low-level drug offenses getting years and years put in prison and the uh, spectacle of banking officials not uh, even indicted uh, in any uh, real way for the sins of the financial crisis. It's that dichotomy that I think is really the problem. It's it's not necessarily that I I, I lust for, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, bankers to be thrown in jail necessarily. It's that I, I think that the unfairness of uh, that that split in the system, that two tiered kind of nature of our criminal justice system is a social problem. It, it, it's 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 a problem that will ultimately lead to unrest and, and, and lead to demagoguery. And it's something that policymakers must guard against by pursuing equal justice under the law. And if that means uh, less time for, you know, lower level offenses and uh, more time for those who create giant financial crises that affect millions, uh, then, then so be it. What do you think of the term white collar crime? I mean, I feel like maybe this is just sort of what it's come to mean, but I, I just feel like we should sort of banish it because it, it feels to me that it evokes this idea that there aren't any victims, that it's it's just stuff that, you know, it's numbers on paper, you know, kinds of things and not really something that has any impact. Right. I mean, what we're really talking about is fraud. I mean, if mm-hmm. you're talking about millions of fake documents that are produced to be used in foreclosure cases because otherwise the evidence doesn't exist to prove that a financial entity owns the loan, you're talking about fraud. That's a fraud upon the court. If you're talking about millions of fake accounts created by Wells Fargo uh, in order to show growth to investors uh, in terms of their their selling of of accounts to to in, to numerous people, uh, you're talking about fraud. It's fraud upon investors. It's obviously a fraud when you sell an account, uh, presumably in the name of a customer who doesn't know about it. I, I think the fraud frame is 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 far more potent because it happens to be accurate. That's interesting. Yeah, I like that language. I also want to ask some about monopoly power. And, you know, you've been covering, you've been one of the sort of early journalists covering concentration as it's emerged more as a political issue and there's been more visibility to just how concentrated the economy has come and, and the, what the problems are with monopolies, the, the impacts on, on people's wages, on small businesses and so on. And I'm curious just to how you think this is, you know, what you've seen in the time that you've been covering that issue and whether, you know, you feel like this is moving more into the broad political conversation and, and if not, sort of how do we make this something that's more at the forefront of people's minds when they think about who they're going to vote for and what they want their candidates to do? Well, I think it's been difficult uh, to make that leap from uh, the very technical arguments that you hear when you hear about uh, antitrust law and concentration and, and competition policy into making that real for people. Uh, there are, I think, very simple ways 
to do that. Uh, you can, you can really take any industry and you can, uh, apply it to how it affects an individual in their life, uh, uh, and, and, and the things that they go through on a, on a daily basis. One that I like to use and, and, you know, it, 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 it maybe doesn't affect everybody, but, uh, is, is the example of the airlines. So, uh, everyone who's flown in the last 10 years, you know, recognizes that either they've gotten a lot bigger or they're the, the, the ability <laughs> for them to fit into the seat is a lot more treacherous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the experience of flying has become one that was actually seen as, as luxurious in the, the 50s and 60s and, uh, to where today it's, it's an absolute chore and drudgery. Uh, to get yourself onto an airplane, squeeze into that seat, be nickel and dime for everything, any kind of amenity that gets you out of the misery of flying, uh, whether it's a, a, a larger seat or ability to uh, put your bags in the overhead bin. Uh, and, and also you, you've seen just uh, nonstop delays, uh, uh, cancellations of flight, little computer glitches that cause thousands of uh, connections to be missed. Uh, and that is a, a subset of the concentration in the industry. We went from eight major airlines to four in a relatively short period of time. Uh, deregulation in the 1970s uh, facilitated this concentration, and now – we have this situation where there are four airlines that control 80% of the routes and they move together in terms of the amenities they provide, in terms of the fees that they charge. Uh, they, they are essentially one airline because they, they, they do not differentiate really on quality or price in any meaningful way. And uh, that's something that anyone who has tried to book a flight or take a flight can immediately hook into. Uh, it's, it's, it's very obvious what's going on. Uh, and I think those types of uh, parallels, those types of ways to connect to people are available very broadly across uh, sectors of the economy. It's, it's when you talk about this in terms of, you know, the standard antitrust law argument of consumer welfare and, and whether uh, uh, there are efficiencies gained by mergers and things like that. The, the eyes of your audience are going to glaze over. But if you talk about it in terms of what people are ex- experiencing, it becomes very clear. Yes, my cable company is terrible because they don't have to provide me with good service because they're the only game in town. Yes, uh, the experience of flying is, is, is pathetic. Yes, uh, everywhere I go on the internet, I'm you know, stalked by targeted advertising that that seems to be coming right out of the words and, and, and experiences that I provide on Facebook or my email every day. And that's because my data is being sold to every advertiser under the sun. I mean, everyone has this experience. And so if you can just sort of connect that to concentration, I think that's the way that you build a critical mass. You're listening to David Dayen, one of the preeminent muckraking journalists of our time. I'm Stacy Mitchell with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. We'll be right back after a short break. 
So if you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You know, we're coming up on the end of the year, and this is always a big time of year for us in terms of um, asking people to donate. And, you know, any amount is great, $25, $50. Those small donations are really important to us. Um, The bulk of our funding comes from grants that we get from foundations, but uh, grants, while they're wonderful, are uh, not always very flexible. We have to use them for very specific things that we're funded for. Dollars from our donors, um, donors like you, make a huge difference to us because they're flexible and we can use them to take on new projects or things that come up uh, that we really feel are important to look at. And it's they're also the dollars that support this podcast. So I hope you'll uh, consider as we uh, wind up the year here, including the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in your charitable donations this year. Thanks so much. The cable companies are widely hated, as are the airlines. And boy, gosh, I'm in a small city, which is really awful if you have to fly. My nephew, a few weeks ago, was uh, getting on a flight from here to go home, and his flight was uh, oversold or canceled. Anyway, he didn't have a seat, and the next time they had a free seat for him was six days later. Uh, which is just astonishing. But, you know, those kinds of experience, I guess I'm, I'm, you know, I'm people feel the awfulness of Time Warner or uh, American Airlines. But what about monopolies or, you know, companies that have a lot of power that um, generally have a pretty enjoyable consumer experience? And I'm, you know, I'm thinking of Amazon, of course, which we do a lot of work on. How do you think we get there? Because I think that's a harder thing. And I, you know, I think partly because people are so you know, in this consumer frame of mind. And I guess one of my strategies has been to remind people that they're also producers of value and that their their role in the marketplace is broader and that they're also citizens. But I'm not sure that's a little bit maybe roundabout um, and, and harder to reach people with. I'm curious how you think about those, the, the friendly monopolies. Yeah, it's difficult because, uh, you know, uh, Amazon, as you know, has, has based uh, a lot of their business model on uh, this notion of consumer friendliness, of doing everything for the consumer. Uh, and of course, our antitrust laws are focused on consumers and the consumer experience, uh, when that is, in fact, a limiting frame when you're talking about the, the aggrandizement of power uh, and the ability to use that power uh, in, in ways that are disfavorable. So, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a turn that you have to make, but there are, I think, examples out there. I mean, if you look at something like uh, uh, what Amazon did to Birkenstocks, for example, where um, they uh, wanted Birkenstocks to sell on the Amazon platform and Birkenstocks said, no, that, that didn't make financial sense to us. And so Amazon said, OK, well, um, uh, suddenly a bunch of counterfeits to Birkenstocks started showing up on the Amazon platform, and it was almost like a blackmail situation to get Birkenstocks on there, and finally they relented. Uh, that's something that I think anyone who, uh, you know, is a, a, a worker of any kind can understand, like, what if the, the thing that you did was being forced to be sold in one particular store, the the the, the thing that you produced or, or the service that you provided, 
uh, and with the threat of undercutting your business and putting you uh, essentially on the street uh, if you didn't comply. Uh, I, I think there are ideas like this out there that point to sort of a, a, a very American concept of fairness that uh, we've gotten away from, I think, a little bit. Uh, but it, it, it is in some way at the heart of this notion of American values that if you work hard, play by the rules, that whole thing, that you should be able to, to uh, make your way through. And uh, companies like Amazon prevent that in, in, in fundamental ways. Uh, I think you have to make more of a values-based argument, but you can use these specific details, specific examples, and the connecting on, on this, this uh, concept of fairness and values, I think, that can, that can bring it through. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. One of the other uh, monopolies I want to ask you about, because you've reported on, and it's, it's actually a monopoly I get a lot of email about, which is Ticketmaster. You know, Ticketmaster has is you know putting a lot of um, independent music venues uh, out of business or really squeezing them uh, to the margins, um, and having a lot of other effects as well. Give us a little bit of an overview of like what t- Ticketmaster is, how they got to be so powerful, and kind of what the what the issues are. Right. Well, Ticketmaster is a ticket broker, right? They 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 sell you the tickets for a particular venue. Initially, Ticketmaster was not aligned with uh, artists or with venues uh, or or anything of that nature. However, in uh, 2010, Ticketmaster merged with Live Nation, uh, and and Live Nation is really the umbrella company at this point. They, uh, Ticketmaster sort of merged with them, and uh, even before that merger, uh, Ticketmaster controlled about 80 percent of the ticket market. That continues to be true today, but the difference is that Live Nation is uh, a concert promoter. Live Nation owns 200 venues, and Live Nation manages about 500 or so artists. So think of the vertical combination here. Uh, You have uh, uh, the company selling the tickets is the same company that owns the venues, the same company that owns the artists, uh, what's going to proceed from that? Well, it's pretty obvious. The artists are only going to play at the venues owned by their management team. Uh, they're only going to have their concerts promoted by that same company. Uh, and they're only going to sell those tickets with, uh, exclusively with Ticketmaster instead of a, a competitor. And this lack of choice within the economy inevitably plays itself out in fees. I mean, anyone who's ever bought a ticket knows that there's a ridiculous amount of fees that Ticketmaster and, and, and Live Nation add to their concerts. Uh, and uh, there's even more interesting stuff around the resale market. Uh, you know, there was sort of a, a, a nominal competitor to Ticketmaster called StubHub, which uh, did a lot of resales through scalping, uh, essentially, the, a secondary market for tickets. Uh, and StubHub actually has about 50% of that market. But number two is an exchange called TicketsNow.com, which is owned by Ticketmaster. So yeah, now right. Ticketmaster is getting into the resale game. Uh, what you can see is that if you go to Ticketmaster looking for a, a, a ticket and it's not available, the concert's sold out or whatever – they will steer you to tickets now without disclosing that they own tickets now. Uh, there are other ways in which uh, resellers 
kind of look like they're coming directly from the original venue, uh, when in actuality they're marked up resale seats uh, that are, you know, done through through the auspices of Ticketmaster. So uh, you see Ticketmaster sort of expanding into the secondary market now, not in addition to having total, near total control of the primary market for ticket sales. So um, there was a very interesting uh, gen- uh, government accountability office report that came out about all of this and more uh, back in May. And uh, there are some members of Congress, Bill Pascrell being uh, probably the biggest one, he's a congressman from New Jersey, who has talked about really uh, uh, breaking up this ticket monopoly and making it uh, uh, obsolete. I have to look up that GAO report, um, and nice to hear that some members of Congress are talking about this, because I really, I mean, I get emails from you know musicians and, and performance venues regularly who are on the losing end of this, and it just is such a scandal that you have this company with so much power and whose merger, as I recall, with Live Nation, um, you know, when they, 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 those two companies came together, I mean, I don't remember that really getting a lot of scrutiny uh, at the time. Obama's uh, uh, antitrust agencies waved it through. It, it could very well be because the brother of the chief of staff to President Obama, Rahm Emanuel, his brother sat on the board of Live Nation. Right. Um, oh, dear. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, I talk about StubHub as being a competitor uh, in the secondary market and having uh, 50% of, of, of the resale market. Uh, you, lest you believe that StubHub is some upstart, uh, it was it's a subsidiary of eBay. It was mm-hmm. a few years earlier. So uh, even even the upstart competitors uh, to the dominance uh, of these uh, platforms uh, often are, are large companies themselves. We're seeing that now in the, the tech or, or the online advertising world where the number three creeping up to, to fight the Facebook, uh, uh, Google duopoly over, uh, uh, online advertising is Amazon. They're, they, they, they are building their business and trying to break in to uh, that duopoly. So is that a good thing or is it uh, just uh, giants, you know, wielding swords against one another uh, while uh, the little guy uh, suffers? Yeah, I think that's right. Let me ask you how, um, you know, I mean, you're, you do a lot of muckraking investigations of all kinds. And I'm curious, like, how you find stories. And when you're out there looking at things, like, wh- what makes a good story? Something that you, you know, something that you want to pursue that you think is worth telling? They come in a variety of ways. Certainly, if you have somebody who has a story to tell that's unique or novel, uh, about how uh, they were personally affected by uh, some circumstance, whether you're talking about uh, uh, the, the banking sector or the uh, technology sector or whatever, uh, that's a great place to start. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I have a piece coming uh, that's sort of a way we live now piece about a guy who's essentially a trader, but a new kind of trader. He buys and sells gift cards. And um, he he is doing this in a way that is only enabled by the fact that Walmart uh, does not really police their gift card policies in a way to prevent fraud. Uh, and it's enabled this guy to, to undergo his business. But this guy 
ends up telling me, uh, I, I think what Walmart's doing is really bad. And I go, well, you know that you wouldn't be able to do what you do, this trading of gift cards, without Walmart being lax in their policies. And says, oh, I know. I just I think people are being ripped off. So that's interesting, right? I mean, here, mm-hmm. here's someone that's the sacrifice. Uh, their their entire uh, sort of uh, career path that they've laid out in a weird way for themselves uh, because uh, they're they're you know whistleblowing essentially on uh, on on a large company so so that's an example obviously whistleblowers are, are people I deal with uh, on a semi regular basis uh, obviously there are groups uh, out there that are doing great work that sometimes you just want to elevate. Uh, whether it's the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, which I've certainly uh, partnered with on the number of stories. Uh, I certainly get a lot of uh, leads from uh, uh, people who are, you know, on the ground and, and, and doing that work. Sometimes things are just sort of lying in plain sight. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, so now Mick Mulvaney has taken over the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of enforcement uh, in the year or so that Mulvaney has been in charge. Uh, he's he's the head of the Office of Management and Budget under Trump. And, and, sin- and since he's taken over, CFPB's pretty much shut down most of the enforcement. There were a number of enforcement actions that came out in somewhat rapid succession over uh, a, a one or two month period. And in just reading those press releases, I noticed that they would give a top line number uh, for the penalty and then say, uh, for whatever circumstance, the uh, offending company wouldn't be able to pay that. And so we're going to allow them to pay a smaller amount. Uh, and, and I saw this in the press releases over and over and over again. Uh, and, and so I connected those things together and did a piece about what I called the Mulvaney discount. <laughs> uh, was being given to these financial bad operators who, uh, you know, the claim was they couldn't afford to to pay these large fines. So sometimes the, the the story is right there in front of you and no one has picked up on it. And it's it's up to you to just run with it. Yeah. The importance of actually reading the press releases that the CFPB and other government agencies are putting out there. Right. Stone once uh, said that, you know, all the great stories are, 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 are there. You just got to go dig them out uh, and, and, and read the fine print. And he spent hours and hours and hours in government agencies just reading the Federal Register and reading uh, government reports that were created uh, and, and, and building his stories that way. And there's a lot of value to that. How did you first get into journalism? Well, that's an interesting story. So um, I uh, started my career in uh, media, in, in television, actually. I was a producer and an editor for uh, entertainment-based uh, television, uh, nonfiction sometimes, documentaries, things like that, uh, History Channel, Discovery Channel, uh, pretty much any channel I think you would name. I've probably done some work for in one place or another. Uh, it was a long career. It was a 10, 15-year career. But uh, around 2002, 2003, I heard about these things called blogs, uh, political blogs, and uh, became interested in them. And after a year of sort of lurking and reading and, and maybe commenting, uh, decided that sounds like fun. I'll start my own. 
And so I would, you know, go to work and, and edit some, some television and set something off to, to render, which is, uh, you know, uh, creating effects or something like that. And then go over to my laptop and, and, and start blogging a little bit and then back and forth and back and forth. And, uh, if you were a political blogger in 2004 or 2003, uh, you were part of a pretty small group in a way that is not certainly true today. Uh, there was a, a way to get noticed. There was a way to move forward at that time. It was a sort of a moment in time. And uh, that's what I did. I, I, I wrote at some of the, the larger uh, sites where you could post diaries, places like Daily Coast, uh, and uh, got to know people through that community and in that world. Uh, started writing in group blogs and, and, and things like that. Eventually took a job at, uh, a, a group called Firedog Lake, which is no longer with us, but, uh, at the time was somewhat influential. Um, and I ran their news desk for a few years. And when that was over, I, uh, decided to spin out and, and do freelance, uh, writing on my own. And, and because of the years, of being involved in that community and, and, and people that I knew graduating up into uh, traditional journalism had the contacts to be able to, to make that work. All through that time, I was still editing TV, uh, right up until, uh, 2015, actually, I was still doing that. Uh, 2016, actually, was the last, uh, uh, bit of TV that I made. Uh, so, um, uh, it was a, a circuitous route, to say the least, but uh, one that uh, has been rewarding. Do you find that uh, that journalism and sort of online reporting and blogging, I mean, what, what kind of changes stand out to you in that over that history? Well, uh, blogs have certainly dissipated as a political force uh, in the way that they were. Uh, you know, throughout the Bush administration, the early Obama administration and and. You know, concentration has a lot to do with that. Uh, Google and Facebook becoming a duopoly in terms of online advertising made it impossible to run an independent blog and get the kind of uh, uh, promotional support through advertising to, to, to make it work financially for you. So uh, most people who were blogging were doing it as labors of love, and, and that wasn't a sustainable model. And then, of course, traditional journalism came in and, and, and took a lot of the people who were doing great blogging work out uh, and, and started their own and, and sort of overwhelmed the system. So, uh, you know, there, there's certainly uh, the changes in the Internet more generally uh, played a role. Uh, now, if, if why go to a blog if you can go to social media and get uh, 100 different opinions uh, from from virtually everybody on any topic. So uh, there, there's been massive changes, I would say, in, in the ecosystem of, of journalism uh, and, and independent journalism specifically. Uh, and uh, it, whereas at the time that I sort of got interested and involved, there really was a, a pathway where you could go from being a blogger to being a journalist, uh, I would say that that pathway is far more narrow, if not closed, today. 
Uh, and I don't know what uh, a 22 year old wanting to break into journalism is supposed to do at this point. Uh, I, I don't know that journalism school and, and given the struggles of traditional journalism uh, is is, uh, you know, the typical internships or whatever. I don't know that that's the way to go. I, I certainly don't think blogging is the way to go or building a social media presence. Uh, it, it can be very, very trying since there's so much competition. I wonder about that. And I wonder how how young people are going to break into this industry. Yeah, so much of it about the, the the wide open web becoming kind of collapsing into these handful of really walled, walled private arenas uh, and, and the consequences so widespread. Do you have a, a reading or watching recommendation for listeners? It can be anything. It doesn't have to be related to the topics we've been discussing. I'm wrapping up a, a, a book called uh, Crashed by Adam Tooze, who's a professor at Columbia University, uh, which I think more than any other really gets at the heart of uh, the the failures of the stewards of both the financial system and the uh, governmental apparatus charged with uh, regulating the financial system. Uh, uh, what what happened, uh, you know, before 2008 and after 2008 uh, uh, to to really transform the world uh, in in fundamental ways? Uh, it's it's interesting that reviewers in the United States have picked up on a very narrow section of crash, this small portion where he talks about how the Federal Reserve used these large uh, swap lines with other central banks to make sure that uh, they had liquidity in dollars. Uh, it's it's a, an episode that in some ways looks favorably upon what the Federal Reserve did in their rescue efforts. And all the U.S. reviews talk about that uh, almost exclusively uh, when in, in reality, if you read the whole book, it's a very long book. It's about 600 pages. Uh, it really savages elites, uh, both in the United States and around the world with uh, allowing the crisis to occur, uh, of, of failing to see the warning signs, of uh, patching it up in such a way that restored the system rather than overhaul it in uh, engendering the uh, kind of, uh, you know, populism that sort of came out of frustration with the way in which the bailouts and rescue of the financial system was conducted. So uh, Crash is a really, really great book. Uh, set aside some time. It's a long read. Uh, but it's uh, certainly worthwhile. That's great. We'll put a link to it on the show page uh, and, and everyone can check it out there. That's terrific. David, thank you so much for your time today. This has really been a great conversation. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. And uh, thank you for all the work that uh, you do on local power. And you've really done some tremendous stuff. So uh, I appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our newsletters and connect with us on social media. If you like this podcast, please consider sharing it with your friends. 
The show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez, Zach Freed, and Heba Murray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Stacey Mitchell. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Thank you.